Forlock Forbach Reads. Produced by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library. Welcome to Warlock Vorabach Reads, a Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library podcast. It's time to curl up around a raging fire to listen to some bewitching verses. Last time we felt the cold dampness of prison. This time we'll dilly-dally with the devil on his walk and contemplate time with the ancients. Yes, I'm referring to Lord Byron's friend and Mary Shelley's husband, Piercy Bish Shelley. Piercy was born on August 4th, 1792, in West Sussex, England. His father was a Whig member of Parliament, and his mother the daughter of a successful butcher. At a young age, he displayed a gift for languages. In school, he was bullied by other students, which caused him to suffer from nightmares, sleepwalking, and hallucinations. His passion for science led him to experiment with gunpowder, often frightening his sisters. Upon entering Eton College, he was still being bullied by students. His views became increasingly more radical and nonconformist. By his senior year, he had written his first Gothic novel, Zestrozzi. Also, he befriended Thomas Jefferson Hogg and adopted Hogg's anti-Christian views, angering Piercy's father. Both of them wrote The Necessity of Atheism, which caused them to be expelled. At the same time, he began seeing Harriet Westbrook, whom he would marry on August 28, 1811, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Both of their fathers cut them off from their allowances. They lived with Hogg for a month, but when Shelley failed to mend relations with his father, he returned to find that Hogg had tried to seduce his wife, so they moved out. Shelley began writing some radical political tracts that got him put under government surveillance and possibly attacked by strangers in his home, an episode that Shelley would repeat multiple times over the course of his life. He also began writing Queen Mab, a utopian allegory preaching atheism, free love, and vegetarianism. Following the birth of his daughter Eliza, he remarried Harriet in London to keep the marriage legal. However, Shelley would fall in love with Mary Godwin, the daughter of his political mentor William Godwin and feminist pioneer Mary Wollstonecraft. Godwin forbade Shelley leaving his wife for his daughter, but the two of them eloped and left for France and Switzerland with Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont leaving a pregnant Harriet behind. Mary Godwin would soon become pregnant herself, however gave birth to a premature baby who died ten days later. A year later, she would give birth to William Shelley. Claire had started seeing Lord Byron at this time and wanted Shelley to meet him, so they all stayed at a house in Villa Diodati, 
where Byron recited Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Christobel. Hey, you remember that I read that in an earlier podcast? Which caused Shelley to have a severe panic attack with hallucinations. Mary would be inspired to write Frankenstein. And if you haven't noticed, this is like the third time I mentioned that event, but it's such a significant date in the history of the horror and supernatural genre. Shelley would write two of his most famous poems, Hymn to Intellectual Beauty and Mont Blanc. Returning to England, Shelley found that his wife Harriet had drowned herself. He soon married Mary to help secure custody of his children and to placate Mary's father. The marriage would not be a happy one with Shelley stressed due to debts and health concerns and Mary becoming increasingly depressed as their children began dying off. Shelley's writing continued to thrive as he completed Ozymandias, Prometheus Unbound, The Mask of Anarchy, and Adonis, an elegy for John Keats. On July 1st, 1822, Shelley went sailing in a new boat, but a storm sunk it. His corpse washed ashore ten days later. When news of his death reached England, the conservative papers wrote, Shelley, the writer of infidel poetry, has been drowned. Now he knows whether there is a god or no. In his lifetime, barely anyone read his poetry. Often only 250 editions were published and the critics hated him. But over time, he developed a following and his critical reputation rose in the 1960s, a time measured by radical change, much like Shelley himself. The two poems by Shelley I will read are The Devil's Walk and Ozymandias. Since I already covered what happened in 1816, I will relate some historical events from 1818 when Ozymandias was completed. Frankenstein is published anonymously. Venus occults Jupiter. It is the last occultation of one planet before another until November 22, 2065. Chile declares independence from Spain. Congress adopts giving the United States flag 13 red and white stripes and 20 stars, a star for each state. Brooks Brothers, the oldest men's clothier, opens its first store in New York City. Illinois becomes the 21st state. Silent Night is first performed in Austria. The first edition of the Farmer's Almanac is published. Karl Marx and Emily Bronte are born. And now for the poetry of Piercy Bish Shelley. The Devil's Walk Once early in the morning, Beelzebub arose. With care his sweet person adorning, he put on his Sunday clothes. He drew on a boot to hide his hoof. He drew on a glove to hide his claw. His horns were concealed by a bra shampoo, and the devil went forth as natty a bow as Bond Street ever saw. He sat him down in London town before earth's morning ray. With a favorite imp, he began to chat. 
on religion and scandal, this and that, until the dawn of day. And then to St. James' court he went, and St. Paul's church he took on his way. He was mighty thick with every saint, though they were formal, and he was gay. The devil was an agriculturist, and as bad weeds quickly grow, in looking over his farm I wist he couldn't find cause for woe. He peeped in each hole, to each chamber stole, his promising livestock to view. Grinning applause, he just showed them his claws, and they shrunk with a fright from his ugly sight, whose work they delighted to do. Satan poked his red nose into crannies so small, one would think that the innocent's fair. Poor lambkins were just doing nothing at all, but setting some dress or arranging some ball. But the devil saw deeper there. A priest, at whose elbow the devil during prayer sat familiarly side by side, declared that if the tempter were there, his presence he would not abide. Aha, thought old Nick, that's a very stale trick, for without the devil, O oh, favored of evil, in your carriage you would not ride. Satan next saw a brainless king, whose house was as hot as his own. Many imps in attendance were there on the wing. They flapped the pennon and twisted the sting close by the very throne. Aha, thought Satan, the pasture is good. My cattle will here thrive better than others. They dine on news of human blood. They sup on the groans of the dying and dead. And supperless never will go to bed, which will make them fat as their brothers. Fat as the fiends that feed on blood, fresh and warm from the fields of Spain, where rune plows her gory way, where the shoots of earth are nipped in the bud, where hell is the victor's prey, its glory the mead of the slain. Fat as the death birds on Erin's shore, that glutted themselves in her dearest gore, and flitted round castlery, when they snatched the patriot's heart that his grasp has torn from its widow's manic clasp and fled at the dawn of day. Fat as the reptiles of the tomb that riot and corruption spoil, that fret their little hour in gloom and creep and live the while. Fat as that prince's maudlin brain, which, addled by some gilded toy, Tired, gives his sweet meat and again cries for it like a humored boy. For he is fat, his waistcoat gay, when strained upon a levee day, scarce meets across his princely paunch, and pantaloons are like half moons upon each brawny haunch. How vast his stock of calf, when plenty had filled his empty head and heart, enough to satiate Foplin's twenty could make his pantaloon seem start. The devil, who sometimes is called nature, for men of power provides thus well, whilst every change in every feature their great original can tell. Satan saw a lawyer of viper slay that crawled up the leg of his table. It reminded him most marvelously of the story of Cain and Abel. 
the wealthy yeoman, as he wanders his fertile fields among, and on his thriving cattle ponders, counts his sure gains, and hums a song. Thus did the devil, through earth walking, hum low a hellish song. For they thrive well, whose garb of gore is Satan's choicest livery. And they thrive well, who from the poor have snatched the bread of penury, and heap the houseless wanderer's store on the rank pile of luxury. The bishops thrive, though they are big. The lawyers thrive, though they are thin. For every gown and every wig hides the safe thrift of hell within. Thus pigs were never counted clean, although they dine on finest corn. And cormorants are sin-like lean, although they eat from night to morn. Oh, why is the father of hell in such glee, as he grins from ear to ear? Why does he doff his clothes joyfully, as he skips and prances and flaps his wing, as he sidles, leers, and twirls his sting, and dares as he is to appear? A statesman passed, alone to him the devil dare his whole shape uncover, to show each feature, every limb, secure of an unchanging lover. At this known sign, a welcome sight, the watchful demon sought their king, and every fiend of the Stygian knight was in an instant on the wing. Pale loyalty, his guilt-steeled brow, with wreaths of gory laurel crowned, the hellhounds murder, want, and woe, forever hungering, flocked around. From Spain had Satan sought their food, t'was human woe and human blood. Hark, the earthquakes crash, I hear. Kings turn pale, and conquerors start. Ruffians tremble in their fear, for their Satan doth depart. This day fiends give to revelry, to celebrate their king's return, and with delight its sire to see hell's adamantine limits burn. But were the devil's sight as keen as reason's penetrating eye, his sepulchrous majesty, I ween, would find but little cause for joy. For the sons of reason see that ere fate consume the pole, the false tyrant's cheek shall be bloodless as his coward soul. Ozymandias I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
Thank you for listening to Warlock Vorabach Reads, a Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library podcast. Wasn't that romantic? I mean with a capital R. Be sure to support this podcast by liking it and sharing it on social media. Help a warlock out, you know? Next time, the poem I am reading has been deemed inappropriate for children. By Victorian standards. Till next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Warlock Vorbach Reads. Subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss future episodes. And discover more of our podcast at chpl.org slash podcasts.